everybody. It's election season, and you hear my voice frequently. And the last couple of days, we've had some candidates on. My name is Ryan Miner. You're listening to a Minor Detail Radio podcast on Blog Talk Radio. Find me on the web at aminordetail.com. Now that we got some housekeeping out of the way, we have a great candidate this evening. His name is Joel Rubin. He is running in that dis- that that wild District uh, 18 race that's happening there down below the Beltway. So as we say uh, from us folks here in Center County or Mid County, because I live here in North Potomac, <laughs> and Joel Joel is in the town of Chevy Chase. Um, as you know, growing up, we always thought Chevy Chase was the actor, and uh, but it's it's really a, a community in Montgomery County. <laughs> nobody thinks that's, nobody will ever think that is funny except for us Western Maryland folks. Except that, for uh, <laughs> yeah, except for you. So, Hey Joel, welcome to the show. You're running for district 18 as a Democrat state delegate. Um, it's a, wow. It's a, it's an interesting race down there. I've been following it closely and I, I find it just to be fascinating to see how all the candidates are interacting and how everyone is kind of racing to the finish line. And I have to tell you, people are really paying attention to this 18 race. I, I talked to senators and politicians and the house of delegate candidates and state delegate current incumbents. And they're like, what's going to happen in that district 18 race? And I'm like, how the hell should I know? I don't I ask these guys, but uh, no, I've, I've been spending a lot of time paying attention to this race, but Joel, thanks for coming on tonight. Um, I know we talked about doing this for some time, and I'm glad that we found a mutually uh, convenient time to make this happen. So let's talk about your race and a little bit about um, what some of the reasons why you're running. But first, let's let's start out by I always like to get to know the candidate in the in the first half of the show. So let's talk about the kind of a little bit about your background where you grew up, how you got your start, and, um, you know, introduce people that may not know you um, to my listeners. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you so much. And um, it's, it's great to be on the, sh- on the show with you. I'm really glad that we're, we're doing this, and especially now, just after early voting concluded only an hour ago. So it's really a perfect time because we're right yeah. in the middle of, of, of the vote. And, and, and the minor detail is such a great resource for us oh, as, as voters, as well as candidates and just constituents and people who live here in the area. Um, we need media and we need uh, experts and we need people who write and think about what's going on. So your, your voice, your program adds a, a significant amount of flavor to that and helps us to figure out what is and isn't happening. And I, I think to your question, um, you know, about what is going on here. I think it's, it's anyone's guess. I, I, I know why, why, why I'm running and, and, and why I believe this is such a, an exciting race. Uh, but, you know, I, I think that for all of the candidates who are involved in it, everybody's passionate about it. Uh, people care right now about what's happening in our country and happening in our communities. And, um, you know, we, we are, we are, if you were at the early voting center today, you would see, the intensity uh, and the interest. It wasn't just about getting votes. It was about about being on the same same wavelength about what we need to do to, to really take our country back. Yeah. What are you hearing? What are people saying? You're you're heading into early voting. You're standing out and you're talking to people. I know that as a voter myself, um, <laughs> to be honest with you, the last thing you want to be 
want to happen is being swarmed by by all these candidates. And I I kind of see you as a having a gentle touch that you're <laughs> you have you have a presence, but you are not hovering, uh, unlike some candidates I have seen do that. And it's it's sometimes kind of intimidating <laughs> to watch to walk through that scrum of candidates and volunteers and supporters, and they want to immediately hand you something, and it's like are you serious? How am I going to digest all this information in 30 seconds before I walk into this voting booth? And it's like, come on. But I think a lot of people already know who they are voting for as they approach that voting center. What is your take on that? Yeah. You, you know, I mean, when, when you witness people coming towards the doors and coming to vote. And so, so let's just make it really concrete to today in the last week, uh, at the Lawton Center, for example, right in the heart of my town, in the town of Chevy Chase, is one of the core District 18 early voting centers. And the physical space, it was such, it was kind of complicated for a voter to get to that door. They had to walk up a bit of a sloping driveway. There were two entry points, and then there were volunteers from all these different campaigns flagging both of the sides, and in many ways, getting in front of them. And uh, that could be very intimidating and, frankly, annoying to a voter. But uh, the key thing is to not upset a voter because you're, you're, you're not only just asking for their vote because you want to get votes to win, but the whole point of democracy and the whole point of having uh, uh, an election and an election day is to uh, share ideas about what it is that we're trying to do for our community and for our country. And so I found myself in many instances – just looking at the voters, and you have to read them. Is this a person who already knows what they want, and they're just going right. for it? And you just say, thank you for voting. But yeah. there are some people who literally are deciding right there, and that was where, you, you know, the, the, the opportunity to make a connection, to look someone in the eye, and to tell them who you are, what you're trying to do for our community, and then you have to pause and listen, and listen to what it is that they care about. That could be really empowering. And I did find that there were a number of people who were making up their mind right there who maybe for reasons such as travel had to vote early. So they were going in unclear about who they wanted to vote for. And uh, that was always a very exciting uh, moment when you've got someone who was still right then deciding where they wanted to go. Yeah. When they decide what, what's the deciding moment, what's the factor that they want to hear from a candidate? Is it a specific issue or is it more personality based? You know, I, I, I think it's a mixture. I, I really do think that voters are looking for people who will represent them. I mean, we are. I'm a voter, too. I mean, I want people who I think are going to represent my values, who are going to not just uh, advocate for specific policies or for a specific program that I'm passionate about, but are actually going to events through their persona, through their personalities, through their um, uh, 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 words uh, represent what I want uh, in, 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 in my, my representative. You know, this is, the thing that's most exciting, Ryan, really about running for office is the ability to engage voters directly in conversation. I love canvassing. I find that when I canvass, I'm, I'm not going there to say, hey, vote for me. I'm going there to say, hi, I'm Joel. I would love your support. What's on your mind? And once you do that, you begin to hear all the issues that people who you are going to represent theoretically, if you win, all the issues that they care about. That, that's what makes a representative democracy. It's, it's not pulling 
It's not some uh, uh, agglomeration of data sets that uh, consultants provide. It's actually going and talking to the people that you are supposed to represent. And you learn a lot when you do that. Yeah, I've noticed, too, about you as a person. You you may not always do what is popular. I think you do what is right. And I've noticed that you have a, I would say, the, the integrity to stand by a statement that you make. And, and I, as I've written about you, I have said that you tell people what's on your mind. You tell it the way it is, and you stick to your position. You don't waffle on it. And that's, that is a refreshing quality, Joel, and a candidate. You, you don't just tell people what they want to hear. You don't stick to the standard democratic talking points. And I don't see that you would be a, a so-called party hack where leadership, you know, you get down into Annapolis and leadership says, Joel, you're going to vote this way. I think you would be someone to say, no, I'm going to vote the way that my constituents want me to vote, or I think I'm going to vote the way that I feel is the, the best, uh, you know, the best policy for this, for whatever is, you know, before the general assembly, I don't see you caving to the, the so-called establishment, and that's I, I kind of look for candidates like that, and it's <laughs> it's it's unique when when I see a candidate that's willing to uh, not so often follow the party line. I mean, look, you're a Democrat, you're going to probably vote democratically, I should say, but um, mm-hmm. I'm looking for kind of outsiders. I'm looking for people to say, uh, hey, you know, I'm going to stand up for my constituents, and I'm not just going to vote straight party line. I, I really appreciate that. I mean, and, and, and what I'm bringing and what I'm what I'm trying to communicate to voters when I do go into the why why uh, why you should vote for me pitch is is I, I, I'm bringing a combination of of experience and fresh eyes. And uh, you know, I'm 47 years old. I, I have uh, lived in the district in in this town for a dozen years. Uh, my wife and I uh, have three young daughters. Uh, we're a multicultural family. Her mother lives with us. We're multi-generational. And, uh, you know, we, we have no time to waste as a community. And I've been fortunate professionally to have uh, gained experience over the years working in very complex legislative uh, dynamics. I worked on Capitol Hill. I was uh, the senior official at the State Department in the Obama administration handling the House of Representatives, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for that work every day engaging with Republicans hardcore directly. Um, I helped start some advocacy organizations, one of them called J Street, which is a, a progressive pro-Middle East peace, pro-diplomacy organization, which at its inception stood up to the Democratic leadership initially and said, look, you need to be advocating more for diplomacy than you are, and we're going to create political space for that. And I, I think that when now we look back at it, that organization has deep democratic support. So uh, people want change makers and people want change right now. And uh, they don't want a status quo. And, and, and I, I don't want a status quo. Uh, I do really believe that our challenges locally and nationally are urgent. Uh, I think that it requires creative thinking. It requires uh, a dynamic uh, uh, organizing and and uh, partnership in in unconventional ways, and it requires talking to the people who you're representing to pull them into the process. And for yes, for for power centers, um, uh, party establishments, that can be challenging. That could even be seen as threatening. I don't think it has to be a threat. 
I think it's actually what will empower the party as Democrats to be more engaged, more effective, and more real to the voters that, that we are representing. And that's what we well, need Joel, to do, and, and that's, that's think, it. You know, I'm exci- I'm, 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 it's, it's interesting because I think you already mm-hmm. have some experience with bipartisanship. Your wife's a Republican. My wife is a Republican. Yeah. Um, I'm an independent. I th- that's interesting. So it's a split house. Do you ever have interesting conversations? <laughs> we do all the time. And look, you know, I, I, I got to tell you, I, I was a career civil servant for seven years in, in the government to start my professional career. And I worked for uh, the Clinton administration as a civil servant at the, the Energy Department and USAID. And then I worked at Energy and the State Department in the Bush administration as a civil servant. And I think that's the personality of a lot of the people who live in this district. I think that people in this district understand that you can have principles and values and still work with difference and that you should always have an open mind to find the best solutions. And uh, yeah. so, yes, at home, too, my, my wife is, is, uh, is a Republican, and uh, she, she is a, a professional success. She is leading a, a large uh, practice at a, a, an international energy consulting firm. She works on Capitol Hill. Very proud of her. And um, she's able to lead in her space, and, and we, the fun part is we agree on a lot, and when we disagree, you know what happens? We, we agree to disagree, but that doesn't mean we turn uh, sour on each other. And it's been really exciting to see my daughters and our, our daughters, frankly, grow up in a house where they get to form their own opinions. They're seeing mommy and daddy have their own opinions. And I think independent thought is, is, a, a, is a strength. And, uh, you know, that's, that's really how you make for the best outcomes is when you're, you're challenging your thinking. My wife strong arms me. That's what she does. To see her point, well, she, she takes not, me on. I'm not going to introduce her to my wife. <laughs> oh yeah, no, she strong arms me. Be married to strong women. Trust me. It's uh, oh yeah, she's scary. <laughs> she's four foot eleven and and fierce as a, a lion. So uh, it, it's pretty interesting. <laughs> but uh, you know, I was going to say I wanted to mention too. You and I have a a, a mutual appreciation for a uh, a city that I think is somewhat of my second home. I, I, my undergraduate, I did at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, and you were at Carnegie Mellon. And I know we talked about this in another interview when you were running in 2016 for Congress, but I kind of miss Pittsburgh. It's really growing. And I, I see a lot of fascinating uh, advancements being made since I was there. I lived in the South Side, um, you know, in a dingy um, house with my fraternity brothers. And I probably things I can't repeat on this show, but um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's growing city and it's, it's a cool place. And, and I, I see kind of Chevy Chase or, and I see district 18 in portions of having that sort of that urban Pittsburgh vibe. It's, it's, uh, you know, I spend a lot of time, um, mostly here in up County, but when I get down there, I, I like the feeling there's a lot of energy and, uh, it, it, it's, it's different. It's really different, Joel. You know, uh, uh, Pittsburgh is, is a real interesting city to think about when we think about the kinds of, of dynamic changes that we're going through here in, in District 18 and, and in our area. And, and I, I grew up in Pittsburgh. I'm, I'm a fourth-generation Pittsburgher. Uh, I, I will not talk sports locally. <laughs> because no, when you grow that. up in Pittsburgh, you kind of bleed black and gold. Uh, but I, So I grew up there. My parents are still there. My grandmother, who's 96, is still uh, living in the city. She is, she's great. Um, uh, she's got all of her 
all of her uh, her marbles, as they say, and, and uh, it's really an amazing city for keeping families together. And my high school friends were all still very close. And when I, I, I went to the Peace Corps after college, and, and they came back home to Carnegie Mellon for a, a joint degree in business and public policy at, at, a, at their, their graduate school there at CMU. And a lot of my thinking, in fact, much of what I'm trying to communicate in this campaign is rooted in, in that uh, experience of, of both learning at Carnegie Mellon and experiencing Pittsburgh in a, a moment of uh, a, a, an inflection point of its development as a city. This is the mid to late 90s when it was just coming out of the, the collapse of the steel industry and reinventing itself as a tech hub and an education and knowledge center as a community that uh, relied on its universities like Duquesne and Pitt and Carnegie Mellon and Point Park and others to provide intellectual capital for future industries in that area. And you fast forward to 20 years from then, which is today, and lo and behold, Uber is doing self-driving car test pilots there. And uh, uh, Google has a, 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 a large complex there. And it's, it's really grown and developed, and it's done so sustainably. And that's one of the areas where you know, frankly, here we, we're doing a lot of development in this district, be it oh, yeah. to the Purple Line, to the Bethesda area, to what's going to happen with White Flint, to Silver <clears throat> Spring, you name it, Whedon. And um, I'm very concerned about and focused on the questions of sustainability for these development projects and community involvement. Much of that is based upon what I saw in Pittsburgh, where they have figured out how to get the community's input at the front end to really make these development projects work and be sustained over time. Uh, it's it's a great great uh, laboratory for that. Yeah, Joel. People recognize you, I'm sure, when they when you're a door knocking because you're often a frequent guest on television, uh, cable news, MSNBC, to name one station in particular. I've seen you on Fox. I've seen you yeah. on um, many different stations as a commentator. You talk about. In fact, we um, during the, the when they dissolved when this when this president um, rushed to dissolve anything that president Obama has done well. And one of those things I, I think is the Iran deal when, and I, I remember I called you and I said, all right, tell me what your take is. And so it completely, you know, we had this conversation and I'm like, Oh my God, after you told me, I'm like, I, I need to buy a shelter. I, that's, that's what I need to do. <laughs> so not the doom not and gloom. Same, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I think Going you, on you gave it to me straight. Is, it, it, Sorry, guys. Yeah, no, I mean, look, uh, uh, right now uh, uh, we're in such a moment nationally, and um, thanks for, for bringing that up. It, it's, it's something I feel very fortunate to be able to communicate uh, on, on television uh, about national security issues and, and do writing and, and, and for different uh, outlets uh, that, that impact the Hill and, and political press as well and go on Fox to debate as a Democrat on a lot of different issues as well. And, and I asked my wife the other day, am I, am I darker uh, on, t- on TV? Am I, am I more negative than I used to be? And she says her response is, it's a sign of the time. And, and it, it is. I feel that when I go on TV, be it when the, the president's uh, violating the Iran nuclear deal and plummeting us into an unknown next step with, with Iran or – uh, engaging North Korea and doing so in a ham-handed way that doesn't really seem clear to anybody. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm able to 
communicate my views on 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 TV about that based upon my my we got nothing out of that. I mean, we got nothing out of that yeah. uh, the, the so-called summit other than it it was a Photoshop for him to say, "Hey, look what I did. Um, this is a a distraction. I'm going to shake this guy's hand." And then I'm going to come away. I'm going to concede pretty much everything. I have no clue about the country, the origin, the the history behind why North Korea is a human rights disaster. And he comes away and he says, "Oh, he's a good guy." I, I mean, I'm, I was I'm, I got to be honest with you. I, I'm I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed of our government, it, Joel. At, at, I'm just so embarrassed. It, it's mind-boggling that the president of the United States would salute. Uh, a Korean, a North Korean general, and I'm a, a strong advocate for diplomacy. I do not believe there is a military solution out, but what the president's engaged in is uh, a really a far, far uh, leap from real diplomacy, and uh, they're going to have to reverse engineer what he did to try to get some kind of deal to make sure that we're protecting that North Korea doesn't have a nuclear arsenal and. And, you know, to, to the picture and, and, and where, where I think going on, uh, into the national media and, and, and engaging in writing, I think it's really important for policymakers to be comfortable in that space. Uh, so much right now of what politicians do is to uh, get their ideas into the media cycle, catch the news cycle, uh, uh, communicate it in a way that moves opinion. Uh, here at the state level, if we have an issue related to education funding, uh, if it's not communicated effectively, be it through the Bethesda beat or through, you know, or, 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 or through a minor detail or through direct engagement through social media, then the voters won't know what's going on and they'll be lost. And I, so I use my, my opportunities and I always feel fortunate when I get a chance to go on as an opportunity to try to move the needle a little bit in public opinion towards on foreign policy, uh, a more progressive more peaceful uh, policy set and, and move voters to think that way. And, and I enjoy going on Fox and debating because I think that I'm making points that hopefully at some level open up the, 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 the minds of the viewers just as much as on MSNBC. But here at the state level, we have not had as much communication coming into our living rooms and our social media feeds from our, our state level officials as, as we need to, to really know whether or not our government's working for us. And, and that's something that I, I would make as a really high priority uh, if, if I were to be lucky and, and fortunate to be elected. Well, Joel, you carry many titles. One is husband, one is dad of three, of, and, they, and your children, uh, they attend Montgomery mm-hmm. County Public Schools. And of course, last year you were elected to the, uh, the, the town council there in Chevy Chase. And so far, you've been busy. Um, I mean, how much can we really accomplish in in one year? But I, I want to say that you took the lead, I remember, and there was a hate-filled flyer that went around, and I remember this. Um, and you kind of took the lead on that and, and responded to it in a way that placated and reassured the community that it is a, an accepting and tolerant place to live. Talk about that. What happened there? Thanks, Ryan. Um, it was a really uh, uh, frightening moment. Uh, one night I got an email, uh, as a, a, and it was sent to me and, and some folks in the town council uh, from a, a, a neighbor who's Jewish. And he had a picture of a flyer that was full of anti-Semitic uh, language, virulent hate 
speech, and it was left at his doorstep, and he wasn't the only one. And he was scared and concerned. And this is September, only several weeks after Charlottesville. We all remember Charlottesville as as, uh, perhaps the lowest point of the Trump administration, I would say, and there are many lows. Um, uh, Well, not until debatable what the lowest is. No, I mean, the ripping up of families, this is, you you know, you have to pause. I, it's it's too it's too difficult to even talk about yes. without being emotional, and um and and the hate incident that happened back in September also was was very emotional, uh, because as an as a, an American Jew myself, uh, to see the president equating neo Nazis with as as good good guys just like anyone who was protesting him was frightening. Uh, it wasn't just politics; it was physically. Uh, upsetting and concerning and then to have not long after that people threatening uh, my neighbors it really uh, made it clear that we we had a problem and as an elected uh, uh, leader in this town I felt like it was crucial for us to step in quickly to demonstrate to our residents they were safe and to do so in a way that created community that didn't create paranoia that created communication that didn't create anger or use heavy handed tools to somehow build a wall, which is, as you know, completely um, uh, a toxic approach to dealing with hate. Uh, it also was hard headed. So I, I, I was asked by the mayor at the time, Mayor Flynn, Mary Flynn, to take the lead on pulling together. Uh, some work related to it, and we ended up having a, a very robust discussion where we invited the state's attorney's office, the the, the local police, the uh, leader of the Communities United Against Hate, a leading nonprofit focused on promoting tolerance here in, in the county, and also the Anti-Defamation League. We brought them to uh, the town hall for a discussion. We had over 50 people attend. We really went through the issue, and I think we created, and I know I heard feedback from a lot of our, our, our neighbors, that we create a sense of calm and a sense of, okay, we're going to be okay. There are people out there who are, are, are on top of this and taking care of this. Um, you know, the, the, the lesson learned here is that uh, sunshine is the best antidote to hate, and speaking out is how we defeat it. And and so I feel very fortunate that the mayor and the council uh, backed us up and backed me up in, in, in pulling that together. But it really is a reminder of how essential it is to create a sense of community, even in difficult times, and to not tear each other apart, but to work together to really uh, stamp out the kinds of, of, of hostile actions that individuals can take so that we can make a safe place for all of us. Let's talk about District 18. Uh, let's talk about the race ahead and a few days left to the finish line, June 26. There are eight candidates running for three seats. You, you can vote for three, and there's one incumbent running. Another one of the candidates is running for a higher office, State Senate, and and uh, and uh, Sol Gutierrez is running for the district one seat. So there's two 
actual actually two openings and three seats open, and then Alcar is the incumbent. So you got you got this is quite a feel, and there's this is yeah. a a well qualified, politically astute, smart, uh, deeply intelligent field. I mean, this is a I've never seen a race quite like this. Um, I would feel confident in any one of the candidates. And but there's only three slots. So you are, you know, you're out every day. You're working hard. You're knocking doors, um, sending out mailers. You're, I know you're in people's mailboxes. I know that everybody complains about that. But so let's talk about some of Don't the Don't forget issues. the robocalls. Oh, God. <laughs> Don't no, forget no, the robocalls geez. and the digital ads. <laughs> well, this is not. Well, you don't. You don't have the uh, the pleasure, I should say, of living in here in the sixth district, where there's a congressional race. Oh, um, oh wait, no, you ran with this candidate before, so you know exactly I, what I am. Gone through that, yes. <laughs> yes, you know exactly what uh, you know. District six residents are are facing here, but uh, you know the the, the district eighteen race. Like I said, all eyes are on this race, and I wrote about it last week. Yeah. And look, I had some pushback yeah. from some people because um, I think I told the truth. And um, one of the the candidates, their supporters came out and um, they they attacked me and they said, "Oh, you don't know what you're talking about." And and I'm, you know, that's fine. I'm not going to respond to those petty attacks. But I will say that I spent a lot of time in the district talking to activists, talking to voters. And just asking questions about what issues are most important. So I hear it all, Joel. I mean, I, I keep my ear close to the ground. And, you know, as I've been accused of being lazy and not um, listening to anybody else, I, I listen to tons of people who give me feedback into this race. And I think it's been an overwhelmingly positive race, barring some, some you know, minor <laughs> things um, and some, you know, gossip and, and whatnot. But you know, I, I'm more so interested in yeah. issues. It's all about what's important for your constituents, what's important for the the district residents, and what's on their minds. And so during the first couple of forums, I remember back in February, you know, you're all you're all standing out, you know, you're all sitting on the stage. And and I gotta tell you, it was probably the most boring forum I've ever been to because everyone was so polite. And everyone was so nice to one another, and nobody disagreed on a damn thing. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, when are these people going to actually have a disagreement? So let's fast forward to a, the second forum, and then all hell broke loose. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, the distinguishing issue is the, the liquor monopoly. That's been a big issue because most of you – most of the candidates in the race have pretty much agreed on what is best for the district, and we'll talk about some of those issues, but – what is your position on Montgomery County's liquor control, the monopoly on that? And are you are you for it or are you against it? Or would you be willing – are you kind of a hybrid or an in-between? Well, uh, first, I, I do have to tell you that uh, you've got a great network of folks that you uh, engage with. Uh, I know that uh, people recognize that you're well-sourced. And so when you're writing, I get as writing from a perspective of getting a lot of information coming in. So to me, that's really crucial as a consumer of media, as well as someone who's clearly as a candidate, you know, in the media's eye, I need to know what is going on. So I have to read blogs 
and, and, and sources like yours to know. And I, I feel like I learn a lot and, and I'll tell yeah. you, you know, um, I think it's, it's really interesting. This issue, just to get to the meat of your question, uh, the liquor, uh, the liquor control board, not once in all of my canvassing has anybody brought that up to me. Um, hmm. I actually am shocked by that, but not once I've heard, uh, death with dignity. I know that the liquor control board is a big issue. I know that people care about it. I know it comes up, but in my conversations, people ask me about what I'm going to do about development or where am I on schools? Uh, what are we going to do related to the Trump administration? What are we going to do for seniors? And, 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 uh, you know, th- those are the issues that continually come up. Now, I'll tell you my position on, on, on the LCB, and, and much of it is, is rooted in, in my experience uh, having served as a, a, a government employee, a civil servant, which is I don't like privatization of government jobs. Um, I think it's maybe because when I was working in the energy department, uh, I was sitting there as a, a federal employee. I, I think I was a GS9, and I was early in my career, maybe GS11, and I was sitting next to someone who was doing what we call quadruple dipping. And so he was a retired civil servant. He was retired military prior. He was on social security and he was back as a contractor. And I, he was the private, he was a privatized uh, job. And, and so we were paying goodness two, three times more for him to do my job uh, rather than having a fed. So for me, I've always found that it's, really important to actually empower our public servants and our, the people who are working in the public sector. And that doesn't mean we just have unending jobs in government because that is, that is not the way to have economic uh, development and innovation. You, you can't have the government become the economy. It would no way want to want to advocate for that. At the same time, I, I really do believe that privatizing uh, uh, positions is not necessarily a panacea so so i've been critical of the idea of 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 privatizing it i i i i know that some people feel that they don't have access to to spirits in the way they should um i'm not one of them uh i respect that but but i'm i'm just very very cautious about the idea of of getting getting out of public sector jobs when uh, to me, it seems like there is a quality system in place. Let me ask you something. Um, and I know, and I know that I know that people took me on for that, and and I and I respect that. Do you have now the District 18 line? Does it extend down into the the, the Friendship Heights Metro? Is that is that part of the line? I'm not sure. No, 100. No. no, no. Okay. I was gonna. I was gonna give you an example. I mean, it, it, it's just under into the village, but not over to Somerset on on the, the the west side of Wisconsin. Well, one of my favorite restaurants in in Montgomery County, probably my very favorite, is Clyde's, and we live close to Clyde's Tower Oaks. And um, mm. my wife and I, yeah, it's great. And I, my wife and I go there usually every week for a date night if we can find time, and thankfully we have. And we, you know, we, we go there with friends for brunch and I love it there. And so let me, let me ask you this. If, if one of the, the, one of the Clyde, let's say the one down in, um, right outside of Friendship Heights and they, they come up to yeah. you, you know, the manager, like of right there. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, exactly where it is. They said, Joel, listen, this liquor control is a huge pain in the, you know, why it's a problem. We have problem with getting uh, what we need and on time. And I got to tell you, we just could do better with people handle, handling it outside of government. And what, what would your response be? Well, show me, <laughs> show me, show me that that's the case. I mean, I, I you know, privatization is always, always, uh, uh, and look in this area, people here understand privatization. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a policy that, that has, Oh, roots. I mean, we'll go back to, to the, the defense department and, and, and Dick Cheney, uh, when he was, was uh, defense secretary, I, I'm sorry, you know, uh, you know, back in, in the Bush administration, uh, after the after the end of the Cold War, after the Gulf War, there was a lot of privatization of jobs and uh, outsourcing. And then we came back, and then Al Gore in the early in in, in the early 90s did a, a government performance and results act to try to to make government improve, and a lot of privatization. And um, if you talk to people who are career civil servants, people who live in District 18. <laughs> Uh, there's going to be a lot of cynicism about the outcomes of that for the public, uh, the outcomes for the budget in terms of, of outlays, the outcomes for the mission, the public, the public mission. And so, so I'm, 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 I, I'm open to seeing if there are empirically sound studies that say otherwise, but in, in, in experience and looking at the privatization of, of federal positions at a minimum, it hasn't turned out to be the kind of cost-saving uh, performance improvement that uh, advocates uh, often try to to argue, uh, but not necessarily with with data. Hmm. Let's talk about another major issue, and that's the economy. I'm sure that when you talk to voters at their doors, yeah. they have questions about job growth, economic development. Maybe even they're talking about the Amazon, the possibility of the county securing the Amazon's East Coast location, which would be probably located up at the White Flint portion of the of the county. They they've reserved that space. Yeah. I believe there's about forty eight thousand square feet. That that is what I hear um, at the county level. What 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 are we going to do to draw more jobs into Montgomery County? How can we grow the this this region into a business friendly district? Because let's face it. I often hear from Montgomery County's business community that the county is just not paying attention. And fairly or unfairly, I think we need to have let the business community have a seat at that table and have that conversation and find out what's on their minds and and continue to add to the the uh, the, the piece of pie there. So let me ask you, what are you, what are your thoughts about growing jobs in District 18? Where's the economic engine? What's the hub there? What's the draw? Yeah, I completely agree with you. I, you know, we, we have to create an economy that works for everyone. And if you look at the data over the past decade, uh, private sector job growth has been flat. It, it, it has been extremely disappointing, uh, quite frankly. And it, it's a, a net drain for, on, on our, on our uh, resource base. We, we are running in the red. Uh, here and that means that we're not going to be able to provide the services and the support that we need to, to have a, a real thriving future. And so, for me, 
the, the economy and economic development is is a a, a core focus. Uh, I, I have a as I mentioned, a joint degree in business and, and public policy, and and uh, frankly, the the business. Uh, the business background and, and, and my work at Carnegie Mellon, and I'm, I'm my own. I own my own business, my own consulting practice. Uh, we have got to figure out how to really grow our economy by by attracting high quality jobs in science and technology. We have got to figure out how to improve our STEM education. Uh, this this is going to require a holistic, long term approach. Uh, it's going to require education that uh, at the front end. Is, is going to help get all of our students, and not just the highest performing students or those in the schools that have the most resources. We're talking about an educa- significant education gaps a- across District 18, um, east to west. We are going to have to raise our game in the schools to ensure that intellectual capital is coming out strong from our schools and heading into local community colleges, Montgomery College. Uh, and that that is strong, but at at its core, uh, when it comes to real practical investment, I, I'm supportive of Amazon uh, as far as as us doing what mm-hmm. we can to extract it. I believe it's an essential potential anchor for creating an innovation-based economy here in the in in Montgomery County in the region. Uh, we have knowledge workers across this county, and we have the federal government providing billions of dollars every year to the region. We need sure. to figure out how to, to leverage that as well as hopefully Amazon into creating spinoff uh, activities that, that really do leverage the diversity and the knowledge of, of our, our people here. There are, t- there are tools that can be done that Annapolis can advocate, that Rockville and, and, and Montgomery County Council can, can advocate related to uh, closing tax loopholes, uh, buying Maryland. Um, there, 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 are, there are technical tools. But when it comes to fuller economic development, we're putting more money into big box development and high-rise condo buildings right now than we are into uh, smart education investment and, and investment in innovative uh, business opportunities and, and incubation opportunities. And that's, that's, that's pushing us backwards when it comes to our, our neighboring competition in Virginia, but not just in Virginia, also globally. That's a very right. long answer. Um, but, Joel, but it is going to take a, a bigger approach. Joel, on your website, you talk about transportation, and you say that it's a quality of life issue that affects every Marylander, and I agree. We live through traffic hell in Montgomery County, sp- specifically, well, I mean, all over the place. You, you, yeah. you know, Where you are, you face the below the beltway, the 495 corridor, whereas I'm mostly hitting the 270 corridor, um, I don't take 270 to work any longer. I mean, I used to. It it really is a major problem. And on your website, you said that Governor Hogan has uh, long neglected the state's transportation infrastructure. And then you said he's playing election year politics, to paraphrase, that basically <laughs> proposing vast sums of spending without any community involvement. And then you talk about that you can do better and you would advocate for um, – dedicated stable funding for the transportation projects and you name the metro and we know that metro needs plenty of work and that's going to be solved with getting all the regional leaders including Montgomery County the uh, DC and Virginia together and saying hey look 
Um, we got these tracking problems. We got safety issues. It's a it's a real problem, but it takes the federal government involvement in as well. And you also talk about competition and innovation and prioritizing the uh, the allocation of funds for the environmental impact studies. And one big transportation project that is going through your district is the Purple Line. What's your position on that? Ah, uh, yes. The, the, the granddaddy uh, of them all for Kevin Gates and surrounding areas. And I'll, I'll tell you, Ryan, uh, if there's one consistent theme that I have heard throughout this campaign, it, it's, it's that there is a serious concern about pedestrian safety and about transportation and about uh, development. That, that people are concerned that we are on the wrong path. And so the Purple Line fits neatly into that frame uh, because we're, we're not alone in that. Uh, uh, the Purple Line, as an example, which I do support the Purple Line in, 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 in it becoming a, a, a strong uh, a system, but the rollout was botched. Uh, here in the town of Chevy Chase, uh, for example, uh, we were told that there would be a 30-day notice before the Capitol Crescent Trail was shut down, which is the route for the Purple Line, and that there would be a phased implementation. Well, both of those uh, uh, promises were not kept, so we ended up uh, within a four-day period being told that the trail will be shut down over a long weekend, the long weekend before the beginning of, of school uh, in September, and the students who live in our town could not traverse the Capitol Crescent Trail safely and were displaced onto East West Highway to walk to school. And they shut down the entire trail and deforested it. Uh, but we weren't alone in that. If you go east to Liddensville, uh, Liddensville, an historically uh, African-American community, which has uh, experienced significant uh, uh, environmental racism over the years and had promises made to it about the, the, the integrity of its community, they were told overnight that they would uh, not only have one bridge that leads into the town shut down, but the second, despite the promise from the Purple Line Transit Partners being that two bridges uh, could not be shut down simultaneously. Uh, and so this neglect of communities is, is, is problematic for the long-term viability of these projects. People want, we want people to want these projects. And so where I was going with Governor Hogan's call on 270 and 495 expansion is that it's, it's almost the same approach. It's, it's a, a top-down, I know what's best, and I'm going to say it, and the communities nearby, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to consult, and we'll just, we know best. We've got the plans. And, and that's not how it works when you're in dense uh, urban environments, essentially, as these areas are. Uh, so here in Chevy Chase, Liddensville, uh, other parts uh, uh, in, in the area, uh, there are concerns about the construction of the Purple Line. And, and then you add to that, there are concerns about ridership. Will there be enough riders? Uh, will it over time work? I think the jury is obviously going to still be out until we actually see what happens. But the way that it was uh, uh, implemented uh, should make everyone pause about large infrastructure projects and ensure that the communities that are impacted by it are actually engaged at the front end in a, in a manner that is going to ensure the best decision-making over time for the viability of these projects. That's, that's ultimately where we want to go. Now, I know, I will say, I know that will be controversial in some eyes, and, and um, speaking to your earlier point, um, dem, that is Democratic 
the core democratic talking point has been pro purple line period. And, and I don't think that we have to have an either or choice. I do believe that we can have a purple line and have it in a way that works with the communities. But right now, uh, we just haven't seen that take place, and, and that, that's a real shame for such a marquee project. Yeah. Um, I, <laughs> I think you said it all. Um, let's, let's keep moving. Um, <laughs> gun violence, man. That's a, that is an issue that's just, just gut-wrenching. I mean, I, we think about sending our children into public schools. It should be the safest place for them. It's their learning environment. It's a classroom. Our teachers are being now... You know, now this administration is suggesting that our teachers carry weapons. I, I just I think that would be that is that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Seriously, to, to consider that a teacher should carry a weapon inside of a classroom. Shameful. That's not their job. And, I, and it's just nuts. And this administration has not helped one iota. They are owned entirely by the NRA, one of the, the most destructive special interest groups. And I will say this as a former Republican and as someone who respects the Second Amendment, and I do, that this, the, the NRA is the single most destructive special interest group in this country. They own politicians, and if you go against them, then they will discard you and leave you behind and trash you every which way. Joel, what can we do I, here in Maryland? What can we do to ensure that kids are safe inside of schools? These are just very basic issues. So I have three daughters in schools. And after the Park Lane shooting, my oldest daughter, who goes to Eastern Middle School, came back home and had the word 17 written on her left forearm in, in black marker, black, uh, black ink marker. And that's the number of kids that were killed down in Parkland in, in Florida in the shooting. And 2018, our children should not be afraid to walk into their school. And we went down to the march uh, against gun violence, the, 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 kid, the children's march, uh, uh, several weeks, I guess six weeks later, and they had to make signs, or not had to make signs, but the kids chose to make signs. And she made a sign, and it had three simple words on it. Don't shoot me. Now, if you take a look at my daughter, you'll see her everywhere on my photos on the website. This is a, a beautiful 11-year-old tiny person walking with the sign that says, don't shoot me. So we are failing as parents, and we are failing as a community because our children don't feel safe. And that's the baseline. And so I'm ferociously angry at groups like the NRA. When I worked on Capitol Hill, I worked for a senator whose name was Frank Lautenberg, and he fought to close the gun show loophole. Yeah, the Lautenberg Amendment. That's a loophole, the Lautenberg Amendment. That's a loophole that prevents people from going to gun shows and not having background checks and buying whatever yeah. gun they want. Well, it seems common sense. 90-plus percent of Americans support it. It hasn't gone anywhere. So we have to get mad, and we have to get mobilized, and we have to get organized. We also have to make sure that we understand that we're under assault. It's not that it's static and that bad things happen. The NRA is actually trying to figure out how to make our lives more and more dangerous. They are a front for gun runners. Their job 
in their mind is to create markets for gun purchases. When they create fear amongst their members that gun laws are coming in, it spikes sales for gun manufacturers. We have to call it for what it is. They are a gun-running organization. And when you have that making public policy profit over people, that is, you're going to have bad policy. Now, here at the state level, we're under assault. All states that want tough gun laws like Maryland are going to have to deal with potential moves at the federal level to create reciprocity, essentially forcing gun free states that have no gun laws, forcing their ability to, for example, conceal carry onto us here in Maryland. So we're going to have to resist that. But we're also going to have to get smart and work with outside allies. And I bring a background of, of, of significant amount of work in advocacy, uh, as well as working on the Hill with legislative work, in addition to my local work. And I it's sort of, I feel like we have to think campaign-wise. And so where the state house can come in is to organize and organize activists and organize outside the state, because this is a real war for the soul of the safety of our children. And uh, right now we're losing. We are losing that. So no, no guns in schools, of course, but we're playing on their frame. We have to figure out how to flip the frame and make sure people understand it's not about gun rights. It's about gun profits. That's what they're about. And we're about protecting people. Yeah. Well, you know, watching the Parkland, listen, I was in, let's see, I was in eighth grade when Columbine happened. And then I was in college when Virginia Tech happened. And I remember the, mm-hmm. one of the most horrifying days of my life. And I, 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 even though I wasn't personally affected uh, in that I, I knew someone, was I was working in downtown D.C. I was, uh, let's see, um, a, a 26, 27 years old, sitting in my Chinatown office, uh, a really cool place and a, and a tech firm, startup tech company on December 14th or 5th, I think it was the 14th or 15th, 2012 um, when Sandy Hook took place. Mm-hmm. And I remember that afternoon, early, early afternoon, um, the reports were coming in. And as I sat there, I was had my tweet deck up and I was watching the news um, on my iPhone, and I just remember tears just streaming down my face. These, these, just these little babies, these children. That I mean, how could how could this ever happen? And it's happened again and again and again. And we hear the same thoughts, the same prayers expressed by politicians over and over again. And frankly, and I'm scared to death that it's going to happen again, Joel. I hope yeah. it doesn't happen yeah. ever in Maryland. I mean, although there was a shooting uh, a couple months ago um, in, right. in Southern Maryland, but I'm, yeah. I'm tired of the thoughts and prayers. I'm just undone with it. I don't want to hear it. I, something needs to be done. Just ap- And I don't know. I don't, and I, let me just be honest with you. I don't know all the right answers for this, Joel. I just don't. Um, and I look to smart people like yourself and many other thought leaders in our community. And I'd, I'd like to contribute to the conversation, but nonetheless, I don't know what all the right answers are, but I know that we, we need to do something. And, if, and I just, I, I think that it, it's a combination of anti-bullying campaigns. I'm part of an organization called 
Sandy Hook Promise, where it looks for signs in students where it may, it's basically a preventative measures, looking for different kind of patterns and signs in kids that might be affected or that might go out and do something like a really bad thing. And I'm, I'm focused on anti-bullying campaigns. A lot of, this, a lot of the kids That's that go great. off and do these mass atrocities, Joel, um, there's something deep-seated that is, that is happening in their life that is affecting them to their core. To think about it, they would pick up a weapon and go in and shoot their classmates. That, that stems from something that is gone horribly wrong inside of their brain. And if we can detect that and we can use passion or I'm sorry, compassion and empathy to understand it before it happens and get these folks help, that's where we think we need to start. And then we can, you know, and, and simultaneously we need to address, of course, the gun issue as well. I mean, kids should not be having access to weapons and walking into schools and shooting someone. And so, like I said, I don't know all the right answers, but I know that that's going to be a major issue um, moving forward in Annapolis. And so I set the interview to Absolutely. An, an hour. And so let's, let's take the last two minutes. And where do you want to head with this campaign? A few days left. What do you want voters to know? How can what's the hook for if someone is like, okay, I got two choices, all right? Or I got these three choices. And let's just say, for example, they walk in and say, All right, one of my choices is Mila Johns, one of my choices is Leslie Milano. And they're like, I don't know. I mean, who's who's my third choice? How can what's the hook for Joel Rubin? This this is, is is first and foremost a great conversation, and, and I think this is part of the reason. Um, when I talk to voters, I try to make sure they understand that I'm bringing in the most government experience to this race, and that that's what we we need right now. Um, state office is not an entry level job. Uh, I've served at a senior level in the Obama administration in very hot topics with Capitol Hill. I'm elected locally on the town council dealing with significant development infrastructure issues as well as social and community uh, issues related to, to the hate uh, speech that we, we talked about earlier. You have to hit the ground running. Uh, we need people in Annapolis who are ready on day one to stand up and, and take on those tough fights and work across party lines potentially and work with diverse coalitions. That's what I'm bringing. Um, I'm bringing a skill set of media and advocacy and government that is, is uh, impactful, but I'm also bringing passion and heart. And, you know, the teachers endorse me, the, the Montgomery County Education Association, I think largely because they understand that, yes, I'm a former teacher and I, I taught in the Peace Corps. So I have that, that, um, that, that, that connection, but I know how to move the ball on policy. And, and we, we are at the state level at the, between the local and the federal. And we need people who on day one can handle both and can engage in Annapolis aggressively on behalf of the constituents after having spoken to them and listening to them and respected what they say. And that's what I offer. Uh, I offer a fresh set of eyes with, with deep government experience. And I, I really do hope to have the support of the voters because we have a lot of work to do here locally and nationally, and we have, have to have it uh, started on, on day one. Yeah. Well, I think that you're going to, I think you're going to do really well in this race. I'm looking forward to Tuesday night. 
I, um, it's exciting. There's there's many candidates. You're a great candidate, and I appreciate you running and putting your name on a ballot. It's not easy to do what you're doing, knocking on those doors, the fundraising calls, the just the it, it's a lot. It's stress on the family, and running for public office is is just tough. And so, Joe, I want to say thank you for for making time not only for the constituents of District 18, but for me. Um, and having this important conversation. And you are always welcome on this show anytime to have a more in-depth conversation about any of the issues. And I hope that um, you know when you're elected, you come back on and we'll talk about anything. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ryan. Thank you to a minor detail. Um, this is great. And thank you for the service you do for, for our voters and our constituents. Sure. And I forgot to mention one important housekeeping detail that to check you out is on the web. It's RubenForDelegate.com. And you are on Facebook. You have a state delegate uh, public page. And voting is this Tuesday. Early voting just ended today at 8 o'clock p.m. And Tuesday, June 26, go show up. If you can't find your precinct, Check out the Montgomery County Board of Elections. They'll, they'll be able to help you. Or they can call you directly, and, or they can send you a note to say, hey, where should I vote? And I'm sure you'll get back in touch with them uh, right away. So um, please, you know, I urge everyone that's listening, go vote, I'm sure, because the listeners are very astute people. They're very engaged in politics. So I'm sure that they have either voted or plan to vote um, ceremonially on election day. Joe, I early voted and it's kind of fun because I, I know who I'm voting <laughs> for. And, you know, we research our candidates and we know exactly who we're walking, you know, when we're walking in through the, the, the scrum of all the candidates there, we know exactly who we're voting for, but uh, we do our due diligence just as I'm sure you and your family does. <laughs> so with that, yeah, I will. I, I, I got to say, please vote. Everyone, please vote. This is the, the most crucial election period of, of our time. That's right. Well, thank you again, Joel, <laughs> for your time. <laughs> no, you're right. It is, it is the most crucial. Um, I appreciate your time and the opportunity to have this conversation. So best of luck to you on Tuesday, and please keep in touch. Thank you. Thank you so much. You bet. All right, folks, that was Joel Rubin, a Democrat candidate for District 18. Voting is this Tuesday, June 26th. Please go out and vote, 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 vote. Early once, well, I wouldn't say often, but I mean, yeah, definitely often, but um, don't do it more than once because that's illegal. So with that, um, we got some more interviews coming up. Stay tuned to minordetail.com and a minor detail radio podcast on blogtalkradio.com slash a minor detail. Thanks, everybody. Have a great night. <laughs>